Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 1. As we continue in our series on the letters of Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor, this is the third part of an introductory segment in focusing upon the one who is the addresser of these letters to the churches, the one in whose hands are the seven stars which represent the authority of Christ and the government of the church, and the one who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands which represent the mission and the light and the witness of the church. And we are attempting to lay a ground and foundation for the seriousness of these epistles for the reason for them by looking at him who sent them in his love for the church both the negative and the positive aspects of his address to his people coming from a heart of love last Lord's Day we dealt with the matter of this tender exhortation which we find in the passage before us which we'll read again Revelation 1, verses 9 through 18. I, John, your brother, and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamum, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was, or I became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. 
Well, again, join me as we ask God's help in the preaching and in the obeying of his word. Our Father, now, draw near in your grace to your servant, and may his words be those that would go to the heart of your dear people for their edification, their comfort, their strength, their sanctification, and their usefulness in your kingdom. Lord, look upon these people who have come longing to hear a word from you, and do not give them what is appropriate to my ability, or my strength, or my preparation, or my wisdom, but give them what is appropriate to your great and unfathomable grace, and appropriate to that which your Son has done. Lord, pour out upon us now your blessing by speaking to us your word, even through feet of clay. Hear our prayer and answer us, Lord, that we may praise you and thank you again for your kindness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we began this two-part sermon regarding the tender exhortation of our Lord to John, who when he had seen him in his glory, yea, only the symbols of his glory, he fell at his feet as one dead. And as he was down on his face, afraid, scared to death, the Lord placed his right hand upon him very gently but firmly and strongly but comfortingly told him, Fear not. And we saw the ground for those fears, the tendency for such fears, and therefore the need for that exhortation and the need that we have for it in living in a time in which the true subjects of the kingdom of Christ are just as all those who have been his subjects through the centuries, a time of tribulation, a time of trial, a time of conflict, demanding our patient endurance and our steadfastness and soliciting from us an earnest longing for our Savior's return triumphantly in delivering us in his power and grace. And we reminded you that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And that if we would reign with him, we must also suffer with him. And we underscored that biblical truth that if you're going to be a saint of God, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, the road is going to be narrow, compressed, and rough. And there are going to be obstacles in the way. The obstacles of the world who press in upon you, attempting to squeeze you into its mold, the obstacles of your own corrupt heart, which is enough to bring you down at any minute, and the obstacle of the devil himself, who is full time with all his force and anger out to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And then in the third place, we laid before you the beginnings of the basis for the exhortation Fear not. And the first part of the basis of the exhortation from our Lord to John 
not to fear, was the glorious person of Jesus Christ. And we remembered again that the church occupies its comfort in direct proportion to how skillfully and regularly and ably she views her Lord. Her contemplation of Jesus Christ is the key to her happiness and her strength and her steadfastness. As she meditates upon Christ, she gains strength. And as she looks at him and sees him as he is and longs for more and is content with what she sees, she sees in the glorious person of Jesus Christ all she needs to know. And all she needs to see and all she needs to fear to sustain her against the wiles of the devil and the forces of the world and the wretchedness of her own heart. Well, tonight we go into second part two and part three, the Lord willing. The second and third platforms or planks on the basis of this exhortation, fear not. Not only should we not fear because of who Christ is in all his glorious radiance and holiness as the great I am, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the ever-living one, Jehovah Jesus. But we also must not fear because of the triumphant work of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18, I am the living one. And I became dead. The word literally means became. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. I became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. The triumphant work of Christ for us is designed at least partially to give us comfort and courage in the midst of our fears. When you are afraid the devil's going to get you, you can meditate upon what Jesus did for you and fear not. When you are afraid the world is going to get you, and in their vehement persecution of you, and slander of you, and ostracization of you, when you're scared to even look at them, you may look at Christ's work and be comforted and fear not. What is done, and when you're afraid that your own sins are going finally to bring you down, and when you fail miserably, and you see it, and you know it, and you're tempted to give up, or to be afraid God's going to end you. You can look at the work of Jesus Christ and fear not. That work is expressly laid out before us in this passage. In the first place, I became dead. The ever-living one. Now get that in your mind. This is God. I am who can never be defined in any other terms than living terms. There's no part of God that can be associated with death. God is alive. That's who He is. 
And yet the Lord Jesus, who identifies himself with that one, I am the living one, also said, I became dead. Now, how did he do that? Well, I'm not so sure we can understand the how, but at least I believe we ought to contemplate the why. This death, this act, unprecedented, unfathomable, which the wisdom of this world would never have dreamed up. This way of saving sinners, that Jehovah would become a man and lay down his life for man. The unthinkable that he did. Why did he do it? Verse 5 of chapter 1 tells us, John is writing to the seven churches, and he is saying, it's not only from John, but from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, unto him that loves us and loosed us from our sins by His blood. Why did He do it? Why did God, who is alive and cannot be connected with death, who has no death in Him, who can never be defined in terms of death, die? Why would He? Because He loved us. Unto him that loved us and loosed us from our sins. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and look again at that very sweet and famous passage, one which we resort to often in our wedding sermons, one which we Look to immediately when we wish to teach husbands and wives how they're to live in the home. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 22, the Lord by the Apostle gives specific and unmistakable and non-optional directives to the wife and to the husband in a marriage and gives strong directives to the wives in this context of Ephesians 5 which is the outworking of the principles laid before us in the first four chapters, the fourth chapter being built upon chapters 1 through 3, which gloriously unveils God's eternal purpose in the church, that Jesus Christ is to be glorified in the world through His church. And therefore, in chapter 4, the church is to do its diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he begins to expound all the ethical outgrowths of that exhortation and the things which are absolutely essential if the church is to maintain the unity of the faith. And here in chapter 5, having given moral and ethical warnings and exhortations, all the way from chapter 4, verse 17, right down. He comes to this business of domestic obedience or domestic piety or domestic ethics. And he says to the wives, 
be in subjection to your own husbands as unto the Lord. It's voluntary, but it's not optional. And then he gives the reason. For the husband is the head of the wife. Not ought to be, but is. As Christ is the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands and everything. And then in verse 25, turning to the husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Now this is a requirement in a church that wishes to display the glory of Christ in the world, which is the ultimate purpose of the church. And in a church that wishes to have unity of the faith and not to be laid aside by every wind of doctrine and slight of men, this must be done. Wives must submit to their husbands and everything as unto the Lord, and husbands must love their wives. Now, what is the theological basis for that strong and non-optional exhortation to the husbands? In verse 25, he tells us, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. The Lord Jesus Christ died for her, for us, because he loved us. Is that old hat to you? When you hear it, does it leave you cold? You say, well, what are you going to tell us new, Pastor? I've already heard that. It's old stuff. If that's old stuff to you, brethren, if it leaves you cold, then stay cold. Because nothing's going to get you warm if that doesn't. Jesus Christ loved us. 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 The way we were. The way he first saw us. Not the way he thought we might be. But the way we were. Turn again with me to Galatians chapter 2. As if his love for his people, the church, this great body, which would give him glory in the earth, were too general for us. We carry it further to more specific love. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. The faith which is in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, it's not just that he loved us. And died for us. He loved me. And gave himself up for me. The doctrine of particular redemption. Is the doctrine that's precious to the saints. 
It's not a doctrine that keeps people out of heaven. It's not a capricious doctrine of a God who doesn't love and is not kind. It's a doctrine of a heavenly father who looks in the orphanage and picks out little dirty brats unworthy of any parentage and he chooses to make them his own and to take them home with him and put them in his palace and give them all the kingdom that belongs to him and in this case that's everything and he looks at them not just in earthly sentimental pity but in heavenly spiritual love but he looks at them one by one My dear friend, if you are in Christ tonight, it's because He loved you and wanted you. It's because He found delight in you. Enough to shed His blood for you. Enough to lay His life down for you. He did that because He loved you. Our most popular verse says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to die for me because He loved me. For you because He loved you. Those of you that belong to Christ never forget that. Say thank you when you pray that the Lord loved me. Say thank you, Lord, that you loved me and gave yourself for me. And when you exercise the discipline of that kind of faith, your fears will will leave you. At least your slavish ones and your unworthy ones. Unto him that loved us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We should be called the sons of God. Unto him that loved us. Don't you know who I am? I'm the one who became dead. Because I loved you. I haven't changed. I still am motivated towards you the same way now that I was when I died for you. In fact, brethren, if you may take it this way. Do you expect that after giving his life for you in his love. That now he would take his love away. After what he has invested into you, would now he withdraw his love from you? I am the one that became dead in love for you. And behold, I am alive forevermore. The same I. Feeling the same way toward you. Judging the same way toward you. I still love you. Now look at three aspects of this death. And the way I want us to look at it is by looking at Philippians, the second chapter. Somebody said, I wish preachers wouldn't hop around from text to text so much. But they've never been in a church in which they could never have the Bible opened. I trust that these texts will not burden you too much. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a threefold picture of this dying of Jesus Christ 
this sharing the glory with the Father before the world was. He came into the world and died because he loved people. And this love is seen in these three aspects. In the first place, it's seen in the great condescension that our Lord displayed when he came and died. Verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. He humbled himself. Who? The I am. Who in verse 6 existed in the form of God, but counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be clutched, held onto, grasped with the fear that he will lose it, like a little boy or a little girl afraid you're going to take the toy. And you see the tug of war. Or the proverbial monkey with his hand in the jar holding the little marble fisted and he can't get his hand out of the jar but he won't turn the marble loose for fear of losing it. The Lord did not wish to hold on. He did not see his equality with God, his deity, his glory in the exalted state to be that that he should grasp to himself and never lay aside. Why? Because he loved us. And what did he do? He voluntarily emptied himself of those prerogatives he had in heaven sharing the glory with the Father so that he might come into the earth and humble himself and later be given glory with the Father at the point of his redeemed people. He now is seen to be glorified in the church for whom he died, whereas before he was glorified with the Father without the church. But so that he might share the glory with us, he left it for himself for a time. And humbled himself. Here he was. In heaven. And he had the right. Not to be bothered by us. I tell you brethren. I have a spirit. That is. Troubled often. By a tendency. To be irritated. At people's problems. Do you? People ever bug you? You husbands ever have a problem with the weaker vessel? You ever, ever kind of wish that you didn't have to be there all the time giving her comfort when she's crying and you don't and she doesn't know why she's crying? Has that ever happened to any of you in your homes? And that you're tempted for a bit to say, really, honey, I mean, when are you going to quit this? And something in you doesn't want to love her at that point. You want to bludgeon her. You want to ignore her. What about your little children at three in the morning? Now, daddies often have it very convenient because mamas have something in them that make them bounce out of bed at the first peep. And daddies can sleep through almost anything. But I'll tell you, brethren, I believe that some of us sleep through it because we want to. And sometimes aren't you a bit irritated when you got something big on your mind and a two-year-old has got something little on his mind 
and he wants you to understand that it's big on his mind, but you think it's little, and you don't want to condescend to bother with the little because you got the big. Does it bug you sometime, and do you flinch when you hear the squeal and the cry while you're trying to carry on a conversation with someone? And and does the first thing that well up in you sometime be a little irritation? That's what I'm talking about. Now, before you get too hasty to say, my pastor is irritated at people's problems, put it in the context in which I mean it. I didn't say I'm dominated by it. I just recognize sin when I see it. And I think it may be some of us and the rest of us. So what about the Lord? This is God, brethren. He made a perfect place. Said it's very good. He put man and his integrity in a garden and said, Have at it. It's all yours. Till it and eat of it and enjoy it and multiply and replenish the earth and rule over it. One tree you may not eat. That's all. I'm giving you a test. Just one little test. One tree. And that man and that woman one day had a problem together and apparently the gal wandered off from her husband and got in a conversation that she shouldn't have been involved in. And she listened where she shouldn't have listened. And she was beguiled. And she said... And when she took a bite of fruit, the human race lost the bliss and the glory and the pleasantness and the beauty and the joy and the happiness and the order and the righteousness. And all the things over which the human race were going to rule became man's enemies. The fields became briar-laden. The brow became sweaty. The back became bent. Childbirth became painful. All kinds of things began to happen because of these little pieces of dust that God had loved and given this privilege to. Now that's what God's looking at in heaven. That's what Jesus Christ is looking at. Here's the Son of God, and here's the Father wanting more sons for the Son to share with His glory. And what does He have to pick from? Sinners. People who don't want to do what God wants them to do. People who love themselves more than God. Who love their pleasures more than God. Who love their own wisdom more than God's commandment. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity, knowing all this, willingly and voluntarily entering into covenant with his Father at his own expense, the leaving of his glory to condescend to save that which has already forfeited its rights to victory and glory and blessing which has no expectation of it and should have been annihilated immediately and started over with remember what the Lord said to Moses when the children of Israel went a whoring after other gods right on the heels of his redemption he said I'll destroy them and I'll make me another people with you Moses he was doing that to test Moses. And what was the righteous man's gracious response, knowing the doctrine of God's faithfulness and covenant mercies? He said, Lord, if you're going to do that, kill me too. What will the nation say about you if you reject your people? As bad as they are. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, being in heaven, did not think it a thing to be possessed, but he emptied himself and humbled himself 
If that's not love, I don't know what is. The condescension of Jesus ought to be enough to strike some of your fears out of you. As one man said in Indonesia, one little boy, and I think I've told you this story in the past. We heard it at a missions conference one time. Missionary went to visit this dying boy. Went out on his little moped and went through the mud and through the back alleys and through the streets and out in the country and back to this little shack. And he went in, be- went by the bedside, and all the family was around. And they they had called him and said, "The boy wants to see you. He wants to talk to you." And he went and said, "What can I do for you?" And he said, "Tell me one more time how far Jesus came to save you." I think you need to remember that sometimes when you start to murmur. When you start getting big, too big for your britches. When you start thinking it's not worth your time to bend over to help somebody else. How far did Jesus come to save you? And any definition of love that does not include condescension and humbling is a false definition of love. The Lord Jesus has loved me that way. And he's loved you that way. And I trust we'll learn to love each other that way. But in the second place, not only does this becoming dead demonstrate his love for us in its great condescension, but also in his faithful obedience. In verse 8 again of Philippians chapter 2, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, yea, the death of the cross obedient unto death obedient unto death obedient against all the temptations of the devil tempted in all ways like as we are yet without sin led out into the wilderness by the spirit to be tried of the devil tempted in three classic ways in each case, greatly pressed upon in each of those areas. One at which, given the privilege of having the glory of man in this world and possessing it all. No. It is written. It is written. It is written. Why would he, in his full humanity, not do that and not give in and endure that temptation and say no to the best benefits the world could offer? Because he loved us. He obeyed against all temptation. He endured for us against all opposition. He said, for this end came I forth. Should I say to my father, take the cup from me? This is why I came. I've been heading for Calvary since the grave, since the, the cradle. I was born to die. I came into the world because I loved the church and I came to die for her. Shall I back out now? This is the hour, my hour, for which I've been prepared and preparing. His message was unheeded. Brethren, there were people regularly in our Lord Jesus' congregation professing to believe God who hated him and never heard a word he said to their own hearts. There were the majority of his hearers who did not like what he said. Often pretended to like it for a time to trap him. 
But in their heart, they were liars. And they didn't like what he said. His message was unheeded. Why did he let go through with that? Why would he tolerate? This is God. You'll never see in our Lord the little nose stick up and the chest stick out of him saying, Don't you know who I am? I don't have to put up with this stuff. You never see him stomp off in a snit. Even if he prayed all night for these people and doesn't get any sleep all the next day for them and feeds them for free and heals their sick and then they come and say, show us you're the Messiah. Give us a sign. You never see him getting so exasperated that he says, what's the use? Obedient. That shows his love for us. His message unheeded, his ministry unappreciated, <laughs> his person unloved. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, rejected of men, despised. He was no big deal, no special thing. He didn't look beautiful. He wasn't a Hollywood actor. He didn't have the muscles of a weightlifter. He was just a Jew in their eyes. John the Baptist came preaching out of the out of the desert and he was a teetotaler and they mocked him for being some sort of a fanatic Jesus came and he was felt comfortable in a party and would have a glass of wine and a bit of goods with the Pharisees or the publicans or the sinners and they called him a glutton and a wine bibber how are you going to win What's your, what position do you take that's got to gain those people's favor there's no way out there's no winning he went through that knowingly because he loved us you say, now, this was no big deal for him. Let me tell you what. If you don't like people to hate you, and if it breaks your heart when people despise you and won't talk to you and slander you and gossip about you, and if it hurts you when people stick the nose up to you and talk about you and talk to you and reject you and turn and walk out on you while you're talking, how do you think it feels to the heart of an infinite God? You see, God in His biggerness is not God that doesn't feel. His godness does not eliminate him from feeling. It simply makes the feeling as big as he is capable of feeling it. What does it mean when it says, grieve not the spirit? What kind of God do we deal with here? Who may be as infinite God, grieve. What does it mean? Well, I don't know, but I don't know if I would be able to bear a glimpse at the heart of God grieved. But he endured that, acquainted with grief in his faithful obedience because he loved us. Now, I, know you, I want you to notice, brethren, the Lord says in John 17, Father, I have accomplished the work which you sent me to do. He finished it. He did it. But I want you to notice one more aspect of his obedience. This phrase, obedience unto death. Think about that a minute. Did you know that nobody else in the world can do that? Jesus is the only person that could ever obey unto death. You understand why? Anybody know why? You cannot obey unto death. 
You can be faithful unto the hour of death, but you don't obey in death. Death is not an act of obedience in sinners. Death is an unavoidable destiny of sinners. Death is the fruit of sin, the wages of sin. You're going to die. You don't have to obey anybody to die. God's never commanded you to die. You just are going to. He's just decreed that you will. But Jesus Christ was not destined by his own sin to die. By nature, he was not required to die. There was nothing in him that brought death upon him. But he was obedient unto death. His death, as we've seen in John 10, he lays it down. His life is voluntarily given up. His death is an act of priestly obedience. I would, I would love for all of you to become familiar with Professor Hugh Martin's books and his work. There's a paperback by him called The Shadow of Calvary in which he traces the Lord's last days in the trial, Gethsemane, and then the cross. But in his introductory comments at the beginning of the book, he again underlines the great passion of his heart in the 19th century to restore to Scotland the old truths about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his high priesthood. And the superior and perennial and preeminent aspect of his high priesthood is that he does what he does as an act of personal voluntary obedience to God. He makes a sacrifice to God. But the difference between his act of obedience in sacrificing and other men's act of obedience when they made their sacrifices is that the one in which he took his hands to sacrifice was himself. You tell me how hard it is to will your own death. This isn't suicide. This is not a, a, some manic depressive. This isn't insanity. This is heavenly, voluntary love in action. What does it mean to decide to die when nothing in your nature requires it or permits it except your love and to do it simply because of someone else's refusal to do it. Someone else doesn't want to die, so he lives his whole life trying to preserve himself and his world and his pleasures and his possessions. And so for him, Jesus dies. You define that in terms other than love. But I can't. Not only do you see this love in his great condescension and in his faithful obedience, but also in his grievous suffering. In the same verse, Philippians 2, verse 8, he became obedient unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Anyone familiar with the old Persian habit of crucifixion and then the Romans who adapted it and perfected it 
is familiar that the act of crucifixion is an act of twofold misery. First, it's an act of untold shame to be crucified and hung out on a tree in front of people who get to come and watch and stare. It's worse in that sense than the electric chair in a private room. It's worse than the gas chamber. It's worse than being put in a prison cell in the dark. You're laid out in the open view. You're pinned to wood and you're stretched and you're not in control and others control you and you can't leave and you can't move and they watch you while you leave your this world against your will. As a criminal, the Lord of glory died, mocked. The very people over whom he wept mocked him, wagged the head. Ah, you who saved others, save yourself if you be the Son of God. Those are the people over which he broke down when he looked at Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I as a mother hen have taken you under my wing, but you would not. Those people walked by as he hung there and they wagged the tongue, stuck out the tongue, made physical gestures of mockery to the creator. He voluntarily went into that because he loved me and you. But it also was excruciatingly painful. Now we all know about the physical pain of a man whose body is so stretched that eventually it can be described as all the moisture leaving him, his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth, his bones aching, his pectoral muscles losing their strength so that no longer can he exhale because the muscles that do that can't do it anymore. And he literally is in the process of suffocating and unable to breathe properly. All kinds of other physiological things go on. And in some cases, men, I'm told, live 48 to 72 hours on the cross. They were astounded when they came to the Lord to break his bones so he'd be killed before the Sabbath. He was already dead. Nobody ever died that soon on a cross. But in six hours, our Lord died. We know why. But the pain physically was enough. But brethren, I am not one to dwell much on the physiological aspects of the cross. I tend to think it gets sentimental and a little bit misses the point. There was a pain that our Lord experienced on the cross that none of us will ever experience. Now the reason we'll never experience it is because He experienced it. In fact, in the irony of God, the very reason He could not come down from the cross was because He's the Son of God and He saved others. It could not be that he saved others, himself he saves. The only way he could save others was not to save himself. And so in the denying of himself, he died and experienced the very aware experience of God with whom he shared glory forever in the past, from whom he voluntarily separated himself on whose mission he had come and whose will he had perfectly carried out, that God turned his back on that perfectly obedient son for the sake of you and me, who never perfectly obeyed him, yet 
That's love. The world has never seen anything like that before or since it never will. And you and I will never know anything about it except in our own recipients of the blessing of it. Here's God. And don't, don't forget what the Father felt in putting himself in the position of bruising his son. It pleased him to bruise him, but it wasn't pleasant to bruise him. And the father laid the stroke on his, the apple, the pupil of his eyes, what that means. The most sensitive part of our anatomy. The tenderest part, the thing that when touched, strikes deep, sharp pain into us. He laid the, the strap on his own pupil. Because the father loved us. And it broke his heart. It broke the son's heart. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the people standing by were so stupid and ignorant, they thought he was calling for Elijah. I wonder if we've ever gotten a glimpse of what our Lord experienced because he loved us. Voluntarily, gladly, laid his life down. I became dead. But in the doing of it, there's no fruitlessness in this. There's no frustration in this. The Godhead is not sitting in heaven hoping it all works out in the end. The Lord of glory is not sitting in a corner pouting because somehow it all went awry. The Lord Jesus is not wringing his hands in some sort of, of uh, diligent searching for a way out of this predicament that has cost him all that and didn't get, get anything done. No, no. When he did it, he finished and made atonement for our sins. He died in our place. And when he died, we died. And it's done. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. When he died, you died. You've died for your sins. You've already paid for your sins. You paid for them in Christ. Your sins are gone. Your sins are gone. You shall not die. You have passed from death into life. Your sins are gone. How do you know? Well, it's confirmed to old John in his old broken down body, separated from his beloved church in Ephesus by exile on Patmos, alone because of the gospel, and, uh, and he's still living. In his old age, he still hadn't been able to die and go see the Lord. Still hadn't been able to depart. He's still having to continue. Now he's got this last ministry laid on him of writing letters to a bunch of churches, some of which, five of which at least, were all out of line, had all kinds of problems. His ministry's still not finished. He's even given a message to preach that's sweet to the tongue but bitter in the tummy. And here he is at the feet of Christ, broken in fear. And the Lord looks at him and says, Fear not, 
I became dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. How do you know he made satisfactory atonement? Because he was raised from the dead. Romans 4 says he was delivered up for our, for our offenses and raised again for our justification. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work of atonement for you, and you'll confess Christ has died, you may stand on solid, justified ground that God has removed your sin because Christ is alive. He has risen from that which is the fruit of, death, of sin. He has conquered that which conquers sinners. He has defeated that which defeats us. And if we died with him and were buried with him, we were raised with him. He says, behold, behold, look, John, look at reality. He says the same to you in this room in Albany Baptist Church, December 13, 1987. Look, what do you see? What if you look through the eyes of the flesh, you see sinful man, your own heart, a wretched world, no justice, frustration, fears, messed up everything. His parents are even afraid to bring the kids into the world and don't know what's going to happen in 20 years and tremble at it, wish they could hide, pray nightly that God spare their kids from almost the inevitable that's going to come upon them in this culture. What do you see? You look at the sky and you see clouds and you see rain and you see blue, but you, do you see God? Do you, with faith, see the one who is alive forevermore? When you see the overwhelming flood of persecution and trouble, when you see the fears of your own heart, whether the fears that God's going to kill you because he's mad at you or the fears that somebody else is going to mess up the plan, what do you see beyond that? John, behold, you've seen the golden breastplate. You've seen the white brightness. You've seen the glory of holiness. You've seen the two-edged sword. But look, I'm alive. Cast your believing eyes upon that which is real and true. You know what we are. We're so prone, brethren, to say, well, that's not real. I want to see it and touch it and taste it. I, don't, I want to have something I can get my teeth into. Brethren, faith is the substance. And faith is the evidence. You want to get your teeth into something, get your teeth into Jesus Christ alive. And sink them in there. And digest it. And praise God for it. He's alive. The unbelievable has occurred. The impossible has happened. What the devil wrought in the garden of God, in bringing men to the grave, in breaking their fellowship with God, in gaining in his own hands the power of death, God as man has reversed it. The great ends of Satan to destroy God's creation, 
to inflict perpetual vanity and corruption where once stood the glory of God, to smudge and pollute and taint all existence with the specter of death. And is it not so, brethren? You wake up every morning with the specter of death hanging over you. When you look in the crib, does it ever cross your mind, parents? Does it ever? That the days are numbered and that this night might not might be the last for the little one? When you lie down to sleep at night, does it never occur to you, as we heard again this morning, that this night your soul may be required of you? Death looms over the world, and as we again were told, it's been we've been so conditioned by the media to it that we hardly think of it as anything bad anymore. We see it all the time. It's in the thoughts of our writers and our artists. Satan has put a specter over the world. And he's laughed when he did it. But all those great ends of Satan. To destroy God's creation. To inflict perpetual vanity and corruption. Where once there was the glory of God. To smudge and pollute and taint all existence with the specter of death. These great ends which for a time seem to have been successful. The whole creation has been subjected to vanity, brethren, and frustration. But those great ends have been thwarted by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of the dead. You see, there's nothing left unprovided for. There's nothing left to be done except to come and mop up. He's done all that needed to be done for you. Whatever your fears are, whatever your frustrations are, whatever makes you murmur, whatever makes you think justice hasn't been done, whatever makes you afraid you're not going to make it or some you love aren't going to make it, remember, the Lord left nothing unfinished. He loved you. He gave himself for you. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's why you don't need to fear. Not only because of what he is as God, but for what he has done for you. Because I live, he said, you too shall live. All you've got to get settled is if Jesus lives. Because once you find that out, he says, because I live, you too will live. He ever lives to make intercession for us, to secure us, and to pro procure for us all that for which he died. What the Lord is doing right now is seeing to it that you get everything that cost him what he experienced at Calvary. Now, I would say, I think it's a holy statement that he has interest and motivation in such things. I think he has a good investment in what he's doing now. Do you not? I believe the triune God is deeply involved and has a, has a stake in this. Do you not? That if you don't get one thing for which Jesus died that he intended for you to get, what does that do to the cross? 
What does that do to the cost to God? What does that do to the glory of God? What does that do to the name of God? What does that do to the character of God? What does it do to His reputation? If He forgets one thing for which His Son endured Calvary, that's a big forget. He's alive today for you and for me just as much as He was dead then for you and for me. If indeed He died in love for me, with definite, eternal, and blessed, and glorious ends in view, how much more now that he has triumphed over the grave and lives is he living for me for whom he died. What do you doubt about it? You know what the Lord meant when he looked at those apostles who had watched him do the signs of God. And he said, O ye of little faith, Where is your faith? Has God taken his eye off the world so that things are going awry and he's forgotten you in the process? Is the injustice that you're enduring a result of God's slipping on the job? Not if Jesus died for you and is alive. Fear not. Fear not, little flock. Your father knows what you have need of before you ask. The hairs in this room, all the hairs in this room are numbered in heaven. I told my children, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, the Lord said. In my Father's house, there are many resting and abiding places. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be. Behold... I'm alive forevermore, and the whole business of my occupation is this. I am preparing a place for you. Brother, if that's all you get, that's all there is to be had. And it certainly ought to be all you would want. And if you want more than that, may you and your money perish with you. If you want more than that, may you and your pleasures die with you. Because all you're going to get with Jesus is all he has. And all he is. Forever as long as he has it and as long as he is it. That's all you can expect to get from God. What he is and what he has. What do you want more than that? What are you willing to trade that for? And if you have that, where's the rejoicing? Where's the praise? Where's the gratitude? Where's the love? Where's the service? Where's the giving? 
Where's the dying? Where's the slaving? Where's the denying? Where's the giving with all your might and doing with all your might and doing and eating and drinking and whatever you do to the glory of God? Where is it all? He that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him give us all things? In the light of that, when's, what's, what have you given? What are you planning to give? Oh, not to save yourself. If a man tries to save himself, he loses himself. Not to get God to love you. He already loves you. Not to earn any points. He earned all the points you got. And that's all you need. What are you going to do with your life now? Whom do you belong to? Who owns your pocketbook? How much of it belongs to God? How much of your next check belongs to God? How much of your apartment belongs to God? How much of your car belongs to God? How many of your children belong to God? How much of this church belongs to God? Whom are you serving? How much of you is serving him? In the light of what he's done for you. And for me. What's going to grow out of our knowledge? What's going to be the fruit of our understanding? Dear brethren, I'm aware And when I preach things like this, that I ought to be up here turning holy, rejoicing leaps for God. And I'm aware that I ought to so love the Lord that it ought to pour out in my countenance in such a way that you yourself would get get something of it and go and bask in it. I desire that day to come when I walk so much in the love of Christ that other people can't be around me without it spilling out on them. But I can't keep from telling it to you just because I haven't fully expressed it and experienced it in my own feelings. And I can't deny it just because my old heart is hard and cold. And I certainly wouldn't shortchange another church full of people whose hearts are hard and cold just because mine is. But I tell you this. Whatever there is in me that's happy... And whatever joy there is about me and whatever purpose there is in my life and whatever I have ever done that's good and whatever righteousness there ever is that sneaks out of me and whatever mornings I ever get up and do anything for anybody else, it all grows out of this and out of my knowledge of it and out of my desire that I don't owe anybody anything but everything to God. And that's been in my mind since I was 10 and it's still there. And it's in the mind of every regenerate child of God that he desires to do as much as he can for the one that came all the way from heaven and saved him. The love of Christ constrains us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. And that he died for all, that they which now live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Let's pray. Our Father, in the light of what you feel and are and have done, forgive us for all the hardness and the anger and the cruelty and the selfishness that we are and have done. 
Lord, make us a people that look like you and act like you. And we know that such a, such a request would seem blasphemous and impossible and foolish if it were not that you've promised not to withhold any good thing from them who ask. Our Father, come upon this church and answer the prayer of the Apostle that the eyes of our understanding may be opened, that we may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that we may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the width and the depth and the height, that we may be to the praise of the glory of his grace in this world. O Lord, give your spirit to this church that the love of Christ may be the dominant theme in us in the way we serve each other, in the way we help each other, in the way we guard each other's reputation, in the way we deny ourselves for each other, the way you did for us. Lord, help us. Help us, O oh God. Make the joy and the beauty of the gospel true to our hearts and make us to be what we believe and to obey what we preach. Lord, we need grace. We need help. And we ask it of you. We do not ask it from another. We look to you, and we want to give you our praise and our thanks as a congregation tonight that you did not withhold your son. And, O oh Lord Jesus, we want to praise you that you did not seek to claim and hold on to that which was your right and prerogative, but you emptied yourself for loving us. And, O oh Spirit of God, we give you thanks that you have brought the truth to us and shed that love abroad in our hearts. May the manifestation of it grow and grow and prosper through the days ahead. And, O oh God, our Father, soon send back your glorious Son to receive us to that finished place prepared and remove us from that which is the remain of our sin, that he may receive all the radiance and the fullness of all the praise and the glory of all the ages from all the principalities and powers in things above and in things in the earth and in things beneath the earth that every knee would soon bow and every tongue would soon confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, our Father. Lord, may it be so soon for your dear people whom you love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.